My, my first real job that I got when I moved from Hawaii to California was warehouse work. So it was a temp job, and I did that for a couple of weeks pretty faithfully, and then ended up getting hired full-time, and one thing led to another, and I got promoted to be a lift operator. So for about three years or so, I drove a forklift, and then that's just what I did. Uh, besides offloading 18-wheelers and flatbeds, one of my responsibilities was the inventory for the whole warehouse. Uh, at the time, I worked for Time Warner Video, and uh, so I was partly responsible for shipping out Barney the dinosaur to everybody on the West Coast. So if you ever had one of those, it probably came through our warehouse. So our responsibility was tracking inventory. Uh, so when I remember being probably my early 20s when I was at a church and the pastor talked about doing a spiritual inventory of our lives, it was towards the end of the year, that concept made perfect sense because I had always at the end of the year done a physical inventory of the warehouse. So taking some time and doing a spiritual inventory was a concept I was familiar with. And being that we are ending the year and starting a new one, it makes sense to do something similar. Now whether you call them a resolution or spiritual inventory, the principle of stopping, reflecting, and taking stock on your life, where it's been, and where you think you need to be, is just good common sense. Uh, this past week, I read in USA Today, maybe an article some of you read, that was talking about New Year's resolutions. And for 2018, a little bit bucking the trend, one of the top resolutions was to be a better person. And, and, and you know, so that was unusual because usually at the very top are the resolutions to what? Lose more weight, save more money, but ununiquely, un, 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 being a better person was at the top of 2018's New Year resolutions. Now, the Bible doesn't use the word resolution, certainly not the way we do, but the Bible uses a word called sanctification. Now today, just kind of a heads up, I'm gonna use two words, two $10 words that you normally don't hear, but the reason I wanna use them is they're just really important. And the, the word sanctification, if you've been a Christian for longer than a year, you should have at least read the word in the Bible and at least heard the word. So that one may be somewhat common to you, but there's a second term I'm gonna use that there's a good chance you've never heard of it, and the reason I'm introducing it is because it's a, probably a term you're gonna hear me say more and more, certainly this year and maybe from here on out, because it's really important. Now, I won't talk about the term right now, I'll let you know when it is and when I actually use it, but I just wanna prepare you for that, that we're gonna have these two words today that are a little bit unusual. So the word sanctification, the Bible does use this word, just I wanna get a sense of, just call it out, Right? We, can, we can do this. Who wants to take a stab at what's, what does sanctification mean? And I'm not looking for some theological definition, just what does sanctification mean? What's that word mean? Anyone? Donald. To be set apart, yes, to be set apart. And from that concept, because it comes from the root word that the Old Testament and New translates to be holy, and so what we mean by that is to be set apart, and the idea of sanctification being set apart is that you're progressively set apart for the purposes of something else. And so you read in the Old Testament, uh, utensils and pottery and things like that were set apart, were considered holy. Sanctification, more broadly understood, is the process by which we change, that we become more and more progressively like Jesus Christ as we are more and more set apart for his purposes. So that's what sanctification means, and, and I have this book here um, that, that I won't, I'm, I'm not gonna be talking about it, but I just wanna give it away. I just took it from our book spot. It's called, How Does Sanctification Work? It's a short, maybe 112 pages book. You can read this like in a weekend. And I just wanna give this away. Anybody wanna want it? 
Christmas gift, late Christmas, anybody want a book on sanctification? Yeah, there we go, in the back. So being that today is literally the last day of 2017, here you go, Mike, enjoy. I'd love to know what you think about it when you're done reading it. Uh, And we're looking at 2018, taking a morning to talk about sanctification is really important. So this morning we're talking about three features of it, the nature of sanctification, uh, the patterns of sanctification, and the application of sanctification. The reason I wanna do that is, is hopefully with these categories in your mind, you will be better equipped to think about and recognize the change that God wants to bring about in your life this coming year. Now in a very real sense, what I'm gonna spend 30 minutes, maybe 40 minutes talking about this morning, really we're gonna spend about 18 hours talking about in the Lake Counselor training class that we come, have coming up on January 15th. Which by the way, if any of you wanna sign up for, we, have still, we still have room, there's 50 people signed up, but it's gonna be a great class thinking about the process of change. Now, I just wanna give you a, a disclaimer, it's actually gonna be a class, there's gonna be work to do, we have a book to read, questions to answer, and two papers to write, but it's gonna be all on the topic of how does the Bible understand the change process. So if you wanna sign up for that, call the church office. So how are we gonna do this? Let's talk about three things, the nature, the patterns, and the application of sanctification. We'll look at them one at a time. Number one, the nature of sanctification. So sanctification, I wanna put it this way, has two elements to it. There's a negative and then there's a positive. And by negative, I don't mean, oh, this is a bummer and positive, oh, this is good. What I mean is, that's not how I use the term, negative, there are things we have to stop. There are things that we need to discontinue, so negative. And positive, there are things we need to start, things we need to do, right? So I'm using the term a little bit differently. Negatively, what do we stop in our lives? Positively, what do we stop? start. So let's look at them one at a time. Negatively, the Bible talks about stopping certain things. If you have a Bible, go to Romans chapter 8, verse 13, and just give you a little bit of a heads up. We're going to be bouncing around the Bible a little bit. I'll have a lot of scriptures on the screens behind me, but some of them I'll just have you turn to it. Romans chapter 8, verse 13, what is this negative aspect of sanctification? What are the things we have to stop? So Paul writes this, Actually, it's on the screens behind me as well. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So stop these things. You put to death these things. And then Paul writes in Colossians 3, 5, put to death. Stop, get rid of these things. Therefore, what is earthly in you? And he lists these things, sexual immorality and idolatry and unclean evil desire, those kinds of things. So those are just two brief examples of how the Bible perceives of our growth in Christ, our sanctification in negative terms. We gotta stop these things. But it also perceives of them positively. So stay in Romans, go to Romans chapter 12, verse two. I think I have these up there, yeah. So there we go, Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, how? By the renewal of your mind. So Paul's thinking about Christian growth, he's saying, don't be conformed to this world, but rather be transformed. How are we transformed? By the renewal of your mind. Then in 2 Corinthians 3.18, he writes again, and we all with unveiled face, 
beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So this is really important, Eddie, we're gonna keep that up there just for a couple moments. These are two passages that are actually saying how we are transformed and talking about how it actually happens. So how do we be transformed? It happens by the renewing of our minds. That's how that actually takes place. How do we become transformed into one image of glory into another? By beholding the glory of the Lord, we are transformed. These are really important. So there's a, a stop aspect of sanctification, then there's a positive aspect where we're transformed, and also a kind of a growth aspect from Ephesians chapter four. Now it's five verses, but I've kind of put together the heart of it, so this isn't the whole of the five verses, but I wanted to get to the meat of it. Paul writes to the Ephesians, and he gave teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Now, in that passage, if you're familiar with it, Paul talks about he gives apostles, and, and he gives prophets, and he gives teachers. I focus just on teacher because in our corporate gatherings, what we do normally, that is the primary role that this pulpit occupies. That is the primary role of the preaching ministry, is to equip the saints, who's that? That's you, for what? The work of ministry, why? To build up the body of Christ. Why? So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. That's an unusual mix of metaphors, isn't it? Children being tossed to and fro by every wave and wind of doctrine. If you've ever worked with preschool kids, you know exactly why Paul would put those together. Right? You ever talk to a preschool kid? Right? My, my wife works at the preschool. She always tells me all the time, you can have a conversation about your grandparents and a kid, one kid goes, I have a grandparent and she lives in Minnesota. Oh, I've heard about Minnesota. It's cold. Oh, I love the snow. It just goes all over the place. And Paul says the primary role of the teaching ministry is to bring some stability infrastructure so there's a solid foundation. It's just not all over the place like children can be when you talk to them. So by attending to the teaching and preaching of God's word, there's a strength built in. Rather, then he says, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Now this passage is so packed, but you also see how Paul is saying how we are to grow up. How are we to grow up in him? Speaking the truth in love. See, these are all linked together. So our sanctification, there are some things we need to stop and there are some things we need to start. One more, Colossians chapter one, verses nine through 10. Paul writes to them asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Why? So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. So how do we walk in a manner that is worthy of the Lord? We should be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom in understanding. So in sanctification, there's this radical dual aspect of things that we stop and things that we start. See, the New Testament is clear. The New Testament envisions the growing Christian life of one that is simultaneously a life of dying and a life of living, a life of stopping things and a life of starting certain things. We stop, we put to death the former ways we lived and those desires and we adopt new ones. Now, 
When I was younger, my soccer coach used to, he, he used to love to say that the best defense, you sports people know this, the best defense is what? Is a better offense. Now he wasn't saying you have to choose one or the other. He was saying that when you're doing one, you are simultaneously doing the other. You have to be doing both at the same time. To focus exclusively on one without the other would be a big problem. If you just focus on the negative, let's say in this case, the defense, without balancing it with the positive, so you are putting to death the, the, the sinful deeds of our old lifestyle, where we're stopping all these things, but we're not producing fruit of the Spirit, that can lead to moral arrogance, right? So look, how, look how good I am. I don't do the things I used to do, not like these people, how good I am. If we just focus on the putting the end, putting the, the end of the deeds of the flesh without the positive, we can become pretty arrogant. Likewise, if we just focus on the positive, the things we begin, so we, we are studying God's word, we're part of fellowship, we're joining prayer groups, we're hanging out with Christians, but we're not putting to death the deeds of the flesh, we're not saying no to things, we're not stopping things, that can lead to hypocrisy, right? So if we're pursuing the things we ought to in the, the, the positive, but we're no longer saying no to the negative, that can lead to hypocrisy. Just as if we just stop the negative but don't pursue the positive can lead to a moral arrogance. One of the Puritan writers, John Flavel, said beautifully, it is easier to cry against 1,000 sins of others than to kill one of your own, right? It's easier to cry against a thousand sins of others than to kill one of your own. In sanctification, we needed to be doing both. So the, the nature of sanctification is an ongoing work that has a negative and positive element, things that we are stopping and things that we are starting. And then we're pursuing on to Christ-likeness. Notice, when you read in the New Testament, you will always see this dynamic at work. Paul says to put off the old man, and then what does he follow up with? Put on the new, right? Paul says you turned from the darkness and you turned to the light, right? Jesus, employing the same kinds of concepts, would say in the Gospels, deny yourself and pick up your cross. It's always one with the other, never just one aspect of it. So our growth in Christ always includes both of these elements. We are putting off, putting on, turning from, turning to, denying and picking up all the time. And that's the way the New Testament envisions this sanctification process. But before we think, okay, so sanctification means that it's all on me, as you might be thinking that's the case. Let, let's get a biblical balance on this. Sanctification is not all on us, although some would think that is the case. And so they would point to certain passages of scripture, like I'll have these on the screen. For example, Hebrews 12, 14 says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness with without which no one will see the Lord. Wow, okay. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Okay, pretty clear. 1 John 3, 3. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. And then we have one from 2 Peter 1.5 where Peter says, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and he goes on in those other verses with a whole list of things. 
And so these people would say, you, you can't ignore those verbal ideas in those verses. Strive, abstain, purify yourself, make every effort. If you just looked at those verses, you would conclude that the responsibility of our growth is entirely based on us. We've got to do this. Now others though, they go to the opposite end of the extreme and say, no, 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 it's not all based on us. It's entirely a work of God. So they, God does the work. So if you come from maybe a, a, like a, a, a Arminian or Wesleyan or maybe a Methodist background, maybe that's what you've been hearing all your life, that you've got to do this. But if you come from maybe a more a Reformed or Presbyterian, maybe the following verses of what you've heard a lot of, they say, no, it's not us working. It's God, God alone working. And they would cite verses like 1 Thessalonians 5.23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Okay. Or about Philippians 2.13 when Paul says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Or 2 Thessalonians 2.13, Because God chose you from the beginning to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit. And they would say, so you can't ignore those statements or those phrases, God himself, God who works, God chose, sanctified by the Spirit. So we have to ask, well, well which is it then? Because we're looking at verses that seem to be teaching both, which is it? Is, is it God's work and we just passively let it happen? So this is the, the stance of the pietist, right? Oh, just let go and let God. That, that's the pious stance, that God just does what he's gonna do, right? Or is it that, that we work, we work hard, we pull ourselves up by the, our moral bootstraps, so, so the moralists would say, no, 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 it's up to us, we have to get after it, right? And so their motto is, you know, God helps those who help themselves. So on the one hand, there's the pietist who says, ah, let go, let God. On the other hand, there's the moralist who says, ah, God helps those who help themselves, so we gotta get after it. Which is it? And the way you answer that question will determine a, lo a large part the way you live your Christian life. Now, it's rare for any one of us to be on the extreme ends of that, right? It'd be very rare for you to think there's nothing for you to do and you just kind of wait, or for the people here to think it's all on me and God's not gonna help me at all. But chances are you tend to lean one way or the other. You, you tend to think it is God's gonna do it or it's all up to me. The answer reality, and the reality is yes and no, right? Sanctification is both an active and passive act of God that requires God and our participation in it. It is passive in the sense that, there is, that, that there's this utter dependence we have on God to grow us, to transform us, to change us. But it is active in the sense that we depend upon God to sanctify us as we strive to take steps that will increase his work in our lives. So it's both of those realities. So you see, if we say that it's, it's all God that does this in our lives, that can lead to a, a spiritual laziness, right? And so, so here's that term I was talking about. The term is called, it's called antinomianism. 
That's a, that's a big word, antinomianism. It's not a word you're gonna find in the Bible per se, but it's a big deal in the Christian life. It comes from two Greek words, anti and nomos, no law. It means, hey, God doesn't have a standard, God loves me, he accepts me, we live however we want. Right? And this is pervasive in the church. It goes under the guise of the, the kind of uh, self-acceptance ethic that's going through, that God loves me the way I am, it doesn't matter. Right? So if we think it's all God, that can lead to a spiritual laziness. However, if we think it's all us, that can lead to a spiritual legalism. Right? That, that, that it's, it's us, we have to be working at it and we, we judge ourselves and others by the metrics of how well we are doing on these things. And the standard always changes, right? It might be uh, quiet times, it might be prayer time, how long you pray, how much you give, how faithful you are to attend and serve, and whatever it might be, the point is, we start realizing it's all based on things we do. So one extreme is spiritual laziness, the other extreme is spiritual legalism. We need to strike a biblical balance between these two. Let me use the illustration of a, of a, a gardener, uh, something very familiar to us. Let me think, stop and think about it. Does a gardener actually make anything grow, right? No, right, a gardener doesn't make anything grow, neither does a farmer. Now, the gardener needs to cultivate the soil, needs to make sure the, the, the soil, the plants, or the flower have all the proper nutrients, needs to pull the weeds out of the way and water it. Without which any of those things, the harvest or the flower or the plant may never grow. But without the seed and the dynamics of actual growth taking place, without that, it doesn't matter how much weed pulling or nutrients or cultivating the gardener does, there's nothing to grow. So there's gotta be both. The gardener has to be wise and diligent in cultivating the soil and caring for the flower or the plant, but there's gotta be new life in there for it to grow, does that make sense? And so we, in our sanctification, both processes have to be there. Now I wanna take you to a couple of really important scripture verses that point this out. There are many more, but these two are really important. Go to uh, Philippians chapter two, verses 12 and 13. I don't think these are on the screen, so don't worry, so you'll have to look in the Bible. If you're using a pew Bible, it's page 981. Philippians chapter two. Philippians chapter two and verse 12. This is what Paul writes. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, and here it is, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, because it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So here we have Paul simultaneously talking about our work because God is at work. It is not one or the other, but it's both simultaneously. Now go to Romans chapter eight with me. Romans chapter eight, that's page 944 if you're using the Pew Bible. Romans chapter eight, verse 13. We already briefly looked at this verse, but I wanna point something out to you in case you might have missed it. Romans eight thirteen, Paul says this. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So you say, well that's just showing us that we gotta work at it, but notice that very important prepositional phrase. 
by the Spirit. How do we put the deeds of the flesh to death? By the Spirit. Right? It is not us doing it. We use the Spirit. The Spirit is the means by which we are putting these things to death. So again, you have this dynamic where we are actively engaged in it, but it's the Spirit of God working. Right? So, so that old hymn, I think it was called Trust and Obey, had it right. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. I, I love that dynamic. It's both. The missionary to, to Korea and China, John Livingston, said this, the enemy strikes either to the root of faith or to the root of diligence. So when the enemy strikes at the root of faith, we no longer trust Christ. We have trust, we're trusting in our works, we're trusting in the things we're doing, we're trusting in our, our merit, our legalism. But then the enemy can strike the root of diligence, we no longer seek to be obedient. That's where antinomianism comes in. It doesn't matter about being obedient because God loves us. You see, the enemy's gonna strike at one or the other and the result is both disastrous and the antidote to one is not the other, right? So people might think, oh, no, no, you're trusting too much in your works. You have to go on the other side and just trust God and do nothing is not more helpful than this side saying, no, 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 you're trusting too much in God. You've actually gotta get at it and work at it. Neither one of those are helpful. See, the antidote to the moralist is not the pietist, right? The antidote to the person who's working for their salvation is not the person who's doing nothing. It's both the gospel. It's both recognizing that when we work, when we obey the law, we are understanding the good character of God, right? And, and we're pleasing to God and fully becoming what we were always intended to be. We need to be mindful of both. Okay, so that's the nature of sanctification a simultaneous relationship between God and us where there's this active and passive work where we are submitting ourselves to him as he's actively working in our lives. Now, question is, are there patterns of sanctification we can look to in the scripture? And there are, I wanna point out just three of them. Number one, a lot of stuff here this morning, is the holiness of God. Okay, Genesis chapter one, 26, 27, you all should know this, teaches that humanity was made in the image of God. But because of sin, humanity fell. But because of being recreated in the grace of God, we are still in his image. And so we are often called to emulate the holy, the ethical holiness of God himself, right? So for example, Leviticus 11.44 says this, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate, I think that's the word up there, the same word for sanctify, yourselves, and be holy, because I am holy. So notice how God is saying, hey, I need you to be holy, and he grounds it in his character. Leviticus 19.2, speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. So we have two passages where God is saying, look, you need to be holy, because that's the way I am. Now you might say, well, man, that's, that's the Old Testament. That's the law. We're no longer under that. Come on. We go to the New Testament. Peter, in 1 Peter 1.15 says, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Now verse 16, I don't have that on the screen, but verse 16, Peter quotes Leviticus as because it is written, be holy because I am holy. 
So the first pattern we see for our own sanctification is the ethical character, the ethical holiness of God. And notice in those scriptures, there's no qualifiers to the amount in which we have to emulate God's character. Did you notice that? There's not a single qualifier that, 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 that says we don't have to emulate his character in its fullest. We have to. Now, two things should be going through your mind right now. Number one, man, oh, that's, that's a high standard. <laughs> Are you saying that one of the patterns of our sanctification is the actual holiness of God? Yes, that's what the Bible teaches us very clearly. So the first thought should be, that is impossible. And the second thought, flowing from the first thought, is you're absolutely right. Which is why our sanctification has to be both a passive and active reality. Because we cannot do it on ourselves. We cannot fulfill the law, we will not. Yet the Bible is content to hold the standard high because God's character cannot change. We talked about that in our series on God's attributes. He doesn't change his character. So the standard doesn't lower, and the realization is that's impossible for us, and if you're connecting the dots, that's why you realize you need to depend on God. You see, the realization of the impossibility of the task should drive you to the realization of your dependency on the Spirit. Does that make sense? The realization that this is impossible ought to drive you to the realization of you depending upon the Spirit of God. That's how it's intended to work. So that's the first pattern, the ethical holiness of God. We can't get away from that. And you read the Old Testament, you read the New Testament, God's standard for our growth is his ethical holiness. Secondly, Second pattern of sanctification, the lives of the Old Testament saints. Now, if you've been at Christ Community Church for very long, you know how much I, I preach against reading the Old Testament as merely a moral guidebook for our own lives. I'm very much against that, right? The Old Testament exists to preach the gospel to us to make Christ and God's rescue plan of humanity known so that when it's fully revealed in the New Testament, we see and marvel at the intricate master plan of God. The Old Testament, my friends, we've, we've looked at some of this, is the infrastructure, the deep structure of the gospel message, and we see it in events of the Old Testament. We've seen it in individuals of the Old Testament. We've seen it in themes in the Old Testament. The Old Testament preaches the gospel. It's never intended to merely be a moral book that we look to for our examples, right? But that being said, just because it's much more than a moral guidebook, it doesn't follow from that that we cannot look to it for moral guidance. Does that make sense, right? So it's so much more than that, but that doesn't mean it's less than that, right? So in Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I think, chapter 10, 11, he says these things, he's talking about the Old Testament, were written for our example, were written for our instruction for those of us who live at the end of ages. And he's referring to the Old Testament. 
And so we can look at the lives of the men and women of the Old Testament as a pattern for our own growth. And just look at the list. Job's resilient faith in God. Joseph's stand for purity. Jael's radical courage. David's commitment to God's glory. Deborah's fierce leadership. Daniel's impeccable integrity. And Ezra's diligence in learning, studying, and teaching the law of God. These are all phenomenal examples of men and women that we can pattern our lives after. Now, the reality is, in the scriptures, we kind of get what I call the highlight reel. We see them being used of God in the moment when they were necessary for his purposes. But we need to remember there's an entire lifestyle behind that moment that scripture captures that made those virtues possible that sometimes we do and see in the scripture, but a lot of times we have to just simply imagine the reality of it. So you see young David many times exercising his trust in God as a shepherd boy, singing psalms to the Lord, being obedient to his father. We see Jael with a passion that God would be glorified in her entire nation. Or what we don't see is Ezra's years and years of sacrifice and studying scripture so that when the time was right, he could lead the people of God into a massive revival. So we see the highlight reel, part of the use of our imagination is saying, how did they get to be used of God this way? And you begin to pattern your life after it. Young Daniel, as a young adolescent standing up to one of the most powerful kings of his time and saying, I'm not gonna defile myself by eating of these foods. All throughout the Old Testament, there are men and women that we can pattern our lives after. Thirdly, we have the pattern of the life of Christ himself. Let me just read three scriptures verses to you. John 13, 15, Jesus says to his disciples, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Philippians 2, 5, where Paul says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And finally, 1 Peter 2, 21. Peter writes, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, and this is an amazing phrase, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Friends, it doesn't get clearer than that. There are more scriptures we could look at but Christ himself serves as our example of our sanctification. In these three verses, notice, Christ is called our example in his service, in his humility, and in suffering. Christ is held out as an example of service, humility, and suffering to all of us. So we have the ethical holiness of God, right? the pattern of Old Testament saints, their lives, the life of Christ himself, and then fourth and finally, I'm just gonna throw this one in there, the, the life of saints around you in a local church. And, and you can extrapolate this to, to people in church history or the lives of people that you sit next to every day. If you have the eyes and ears to see and hear it, you will be discipled very well by the people who sit around you week in and week out. The strength of the corporate discipleship of the church is I think one of the things that we lack the most in God's church today. I think very well we have an emphasis on individual discipleship, but do you realize how many lives you could be discipled just by the people you sit next to every week? 
Friends, there isn't a week that goes by that I'm not either encouraged, that I'm not um, rebuked, and I don't mean verbally, but by the way someone lives, that I'm not challenged, that I'm not held accountable, that I'm not inspired by just watching the lives of people in this church. So you might say, well, the Old Testament saints, this is too hard, this is so far back, I don't have access to that. But you certainly have access to the lives of the saints around you. Just in this room, the corporate discipleship of the local church. So we need to move on. That's the nature of sanctification, the pattern of sanctification. Now let's talk briefly about the application of sanctification. Just have some three questions here. When we talk about application or sanctification, we need to ask, so is it, is it general or is it specific? Right? Is it look all the same or is it all different for every one of us? Uh, and is it progressive that has to be done this way or is it just kind of however it works? Number one, there is a both general reality to our sanctification. We should all be pursuing what's called the means of grace. Being in God's word, right? Being in fellowship with other Christians, we just talked about that. Being in prayer, making, taking advantage of all the means of grace available to all of us. That's the general reality. But it's gonna be very specific depending upon your personal life. Friends, if you've spent years given over to uh, anger and, 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 and uh, cultivating a habit of anger or gossip, then there are gonna be specific biblical mandates and commands that pertain to you, uh, specific acts of repentance and relationships to be reconciled that will be similar but very different than if your problem has been cultivating apathy or just laziness in your life, right? So on the one hand, there's a lot of things that are gonna be general that apply to all of us, but depending upon your struggle, the way you're gonna live that out is gonna be very unique to your situation. If you're an apathetic person, if you're an apathetic Christian, the way you get on fire for Christ is gonna look very different than someone who struggles with gossip, right? Same resources available, but applied very differently. So they're general and, and they're specific. The process is the same, all of us deal with the same challenges. We all live in a fallen world. We all have a personal enemy who wants to see us destroyed and not grow in our faith, and we all are fallen in our natures. So we all share the greatest challenges. For however different circumstances we have, the greatest challenges we all share the same. But depending upon your capacity to grow, what becoming more like Christ for you may look very different from person to person. Some of you will find that the moral transformation of your life happens a lot quicker, right? That, that was clear in my early years of becoming a Christian. The moral transformation was probably the most apparent. For others of you, the, the more intellectual transformation will become very apparent. You become alive to what scripture teaches. This becomes life to you. It starts to guide you. It starts to dictate everything you do in ways you'd never thought of or considered before. For others of you, the affective, the emotional transformation will become more apparent. You grow in compassion. You care for people and things you had never cared for before. And all of us will have that transformation, the way we live, how we think, and the way our hearts pull us, because that's what it is to become more like Christ, all those areas of our lives, but we'll change differently. The key is 
not to judge others based on the work the Spirit's doing in your life. So it would be wrong for the someone who comes alive to the, the, the theological reality of Scripture to necessarily judge someone as not growing enough who maybe their growth is just moral transformation. Does that make sense? There's gotta be allowance, understanding for how the Spirit works and moves that he's all making us more like Christ. You know, I, I read an um, illustration from C.S. Lewis. I've been doing a lot of reading in C.S. Lewis this last week or so, so I've been thinking about some of his other writings, and, and so this is off the cuff. I hope I don't ruin it too badly. He was talking about the way a man loses his temper at the dining room table and is judged severely by people who were visiting. And they looked down on him and said, how could a Christian act like that? And Lewis made the most insightful point is that these people could only judge what they then saw then and there, but they didn't know how this man would have reacted a year earlier. And had they known what he would have reacted like a year earlier, they would have been marveled at the growth in Christ-likeness that they saw at that dining room table. So, so the application of sanctification is very different in that way. The process is the same since we fight the same battles, but, but it can be very different as well depending upon your own individual life story and temperament. Finally, the order is not as important as much as the fact that there is progress happening in your life. Friends, imagine this illustration. Your growth in Christ is a little bit like a yo-yo, right? Sometimes you're on the up, sometimes you're on the down. And you go up and down. You think, am I, am I ever going to grow? Is this ever going to change? But imagine now that metaphor. It's a man or a woman playing with a yo-yo, but walking up a flight of stairs. Yes, you still go down, but your downs are a little higher than they were before. And your ups are a little higher because as you're going up and down, you're still going up. And that's what our sanctification looks like. Now let me give you, as we conclude, some practical things. Um, if you're like me, um, at some point in your day, you are interacting with a device like a smartphone or a tablet. And so to that end, I've put in your bulletin uh, six recommended apps that I have used and continue to use for my own spiritual growth, and I think you will find them very helpful. They are apps for Bible reading. They are apps for scripture memorization. They are apps for theological study. They are apps to disciple your children if you have them. Um, there are apps for prayer. They're all mostly free. I think we say in your insert which one costs what. They're available, I think, on most any device. And the reason I want to give you apps is that because chances are, in our culture, the thing lying next to your nightstand is what? Your smartphone. And so I want to give in your hand something that immediately as you grab your smartphone, either a passage of scripture is there to you for you to memorize or a reminder to read a passage of the Bible. But you can download all of these onto your phone. They are great. If you want to help disciple your children, I, I can't think of one of the better apps than the New City Catechism, which is the one that's kind of right in the middle. It's a wonderful way to systematically teach the Bible and theological concepts in a way that's just hand-delivered to you. And in the video portion, some of the greatest theologians alive will spend five minutes talking about that topic. I mean, wow, where can you get that? If you have children, and this is something that Hannah, our children's ministry director, will be giving parents more information, our, our Lifeway Kids app is keyed to our children's curriculum. So if you want to continue to disciple your kids based on, or your grandkids based on the material we are teaching them here, that app is what's going to be keyed to it. 
If you want to memorize scripture, there's probably no better scripture memory app than the Fighter Verses app. Great to use with your family. They have a little singing feature. My family called it the Fighter Verse Karaoke, where you can actually sing the verse. It's very cheesy, but lots of fun. The point is, these are all apps instantly available to all of you for your spiritual growth this next year. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this doctrine of sanctification that we've really just kind of scratched the surface of and thinking about. Thank you that we have not only this entire year to continue to grow in Christ, but we have a context, a congregation to do that with. Father, not only that, but we have resources and tools that our brothers and sisters in Christ from generations ago would just long to have at their fingertips, literally. Father, help us to avail ourselves to these tools that we might grow in Christ, for Christ. Father, we pray that 2018 will be a year where many of us experience significant growth in the Spirit. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.